we're looking at the subject of seeing that sanctifies. You'll notice in your bulletin, we have room for spiritual growth. And that's because of the way we're brought into the family of God. Last week we showed from this text in 1 John that we believe, we believers, are born into the family of God, chapter 2, verse 29, and are called the children of God, chapter 3, verse 1, both from a birthing process, new birth, born from above, to be sure, and by loving adoption in which God predestinated us to become his children, particularly nailed down in Ephesians 1, verse 5. All of this being true, it should be noted, as John explains, dear friends, verse 2, now we are the children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. So John is telling us something rather elementary when it comes to babies and children, and that is this. Newborns and even older children never make their appearance into our family structures as fully-blown adult people. It just doesn't happen. No, rather we all begin as infants and then we grow and mature physically and mentally and socially as we are nourished by our parents, fed and taught along the way by their care of us, later by other adults who function as grandparents, school teachers, tutors, health professionals, athletic coaches and the like who all have a role in our upbringing. And in all this, we expect progress, which itself demands process. That is, going from the elementary things of life to the more complex over a period of time. The same can be said for our spiritual growth. None of us enter God's family as adults, but as newborn babes in Christ. Through the teaching and the modeling of godly parents, we are introduced to the Christian faith and what it means to be a disciple, a student of Jesus Christ. Bible school teachers, youth advisors, pastors, guest speakers, missionary speakers, Christian literature, they all play their role in bringing us to maturity in the faith. Don and I pledged ourselves to the service of Christ as a young Christian adults in a mission conference at our home church. I was 20, she was 19. We were married three months later and gave our service to Christ. This was not a spur of the moment emotional decision. I was already a graduate of Moody School studying for the ministry. Donna was in college studying for her teaching degree. Both of us were raised in Christian homes which emphasized the necessity of attendance in Sunday school, evangelism fellowship, which was a summer Bible school program, daily vacation Bible school at the church, worship hours, prayer services at the church. In other words, when the church doors were open, guess who was there? We were there. And we were there with, can I say, with our parents, not just sent by them. Now we had a lot of that from the neighborhood too especially on daily vacation Bible schools. So parents would drop their kids off and leave and then come back later and pick them up. Not so with us. We learned early on that Christian growth doesn't just happen. 
It's the result of fidelity to those opportunities afforded us within the church and family settings. This is what John means when he says in verse 2, what we will be has not yet been made known. Coming into faith in Christ is not the be-all and end-all. There's a whole life that goes along with that. And we don't live it in a day. We live it over years. He says in verse 2, What we will be has not yet been made known. That is, we are the children of God right now. That's true. That's a given. But we're not going to stay in the same spiritual state as when we came to trust Jesus as Savior. We start out as people born of God, chapter 2, verse 29, which makes us children of God, chapter 3, verse 1, but children on the grow. Children on the grow. He is saying there is room for spiritual growth because, as noted, we do not enter God's family as full-fledged spiritual adults. So that leads us to our second point, which is this. God expects us, in fact, he commands spiritual growth. A father talking to his children, and here he lays down the house rules, and what he expects of us is to grow. Have you ever met an adult who hasn't quite grown up? <laughs> I have some in my family. Not my immediate family, my extended family. <laughs> that are an embarrassment. Think about it. They are pathetic. They come into adult status only because of chronological age. The law says people are adults at age 21 or age 18, depending on the state you're in. But some continue to exhibit childish and immature behavior well into their 30s, into their 40s, and some... (laughs) They never, never seem to grow up. My dad sent me an email one time, email pictures, and they were entitled, Men and Their Toys, which had to do with all the crazy and expensive and ridiculous vehicles grown men have built for their fancy, a bus with an inverted lower profile, so it had wheels on the roof as well as on the road. A bicycle with work boots for tires mounted to heavy spokes from a hub. So it's got these boots going down the road. A motorcycle with a rocket engine attached to the back. People spend a fortune on such foolery, and some may even deprive their family of daily necessities so they can play. Others are immature emotionally. Practical jokesters, giddy, childish. Others are immature mentally. They can't think any higher than the latest baseball score or a woman's magazine's diet plan. Others are immature socially. Their idea of adult behavior is getting drunk on the weekend. You know, because they can't cope with life. Or one night stands. Drug abuse. Whatever the flow of Hollywood, they make 
sure that they are in the stream of things. In other words, they have no personal integrity, no fortitude. In the spiritual realm, God expects, no may I say, God commands his children, grow up. Grow up. Peter writes on how we became God's children, saying, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. 1 Peter 1, verse 23. And then, just four verses later, in 1 Peter 2, 2, he went on to make this exhortation. Like newborn babes crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. It's all right to start out tasting, but you know, now you begin to really ingest stuff and grow. Everyone knows of the voracious appetite of newborn babes. One of our little ones, and I can't remember which one of the grandchildren, was, when they were hungry, they would, they would always go, num, 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 and they would move their hands like this. Num, num. In other words, we couldn't shove it in. <laughs> we couldn't shove it in fast enough to satisfy. Well, Peter is saying that we need to bring that same hunger into the spiritual realm so that we may grow up in our salvation. In his second letter, Peter ends his epistle saying this, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Second Peter 3 verse 18. So growth in grace and growth in the knowledge of Jesus acts as a preservative against false teaching. I think we often get ourselves in trouble because we don't know the book. We're not growing. Paul tells us that Christ gave ministers to his church, let me read it for you, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. Listen to all these grown-up words here. Attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up, there it is again, grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Ephesians 4, verse 12 and following. These are all very positive exhortations to us as Christians saying that God expects us to move from toy land to maturity in the faith. We can start out as babes, but let's not think we can live our whole Christian life as babes. Now, in addition to these positive exhortations, there are a number of scriptures which scold or warn believers for their immaturity or their unwillingness to apply themselves and learn 
as much as they can about Christ. Young Timothy was told by Paul, preach the word and be prepared in season and out of season, correct and rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction for the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. So he's kind of telling Timothy, you better redeem the times. Teach while you can. Teach while people will listen and grow. Because the day's coming when they're going to shut you off. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth, turn aside to myths. But you, Timothy, keep your head in all these situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. 2 Timothy 4, 2 through 5. So <clears throat> Paul is warning them here. You know, Brother Timothy, they're not always going to listen to you. There's going to come the day when they're going to do this. La, 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 la. They'd rather listen to the nonsense music of their own thinking than the solid teaching of God's word. This was already happening in Paul's day for he wrote to the church of Colossae these words, Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he's seen and his unspiritual mind Puffs him up with idle notions. Hmm. He has lost connection with the head from whom the whole body supports and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow. Colossians 2, verse 18 and 19. Growth in Christ, the head of the body, his church, has stopped in these people's lives as they went off into the fanciful notions of angel worship, <laughs> ascetic practices, that's listed in the text as well, and the like. And Paul adds this, such regulations, indeed, they have an appearance of wisdom. They look like it's the way to go with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body but they lack any value in restraining sexual indulgence. Colossians 2, verse 20. They'll not help you make become holy, which is the mantra for God's people. So here, true spiritual growth in Christ has come to a halt. And it's come to a halt because the believers got sidetracked by false teachers and their fanciful stories. Everybody likes a story. Yeah, but Peter talks about the false teachers giving us stories they have made up. So those aren't good stories. In Hebrews 5, the writer addresses a different problem. The problem of laziness. The problem of indifference. He puts it this way. We have much to say about this, about Christ. But it's hard to explain because <laughs> you're slow to learn. <laughs> In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you what? The elementary truths of God's word 
all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity. Did you ever think you would see a Bible author say, leave certain teachings about Christ? That's what he's saying. How long are you going to be drinking milk? Leave the elementary teachings about Christ and get on to maturity. Note here that unlike Peter's use of milk, this writer does not advocate milk. He advocates solid food because he's dealing with people who are not just starting out in the faith as newborn Christians. No, he's dealing with people who have been saved for many years, and yet they have not advanced much in their faith, in their Bible knowledge, nor in their relationship with Christ, which is everything. This is why they're chided by the author. So, what I'm saying is, by direct exhortation to grow in the things of God, and by admonitions, warnings, and scoldings for not growing, or for chasing after religious fiction, we learn that God expects, no, may I say, He even commands us as His children to grow. I've done some reading a little bit on the growth hormone. What I discovered is that the pituitary gland at the base of the brain is responsible for how we grow. Let me read something from uh, the encyclopedia. Growth failure is a medical term for a pattern of a child's growth which is poorer than normal for his age, sex, stage of maturity, genetic height, expectation. Growth failure usually has an abnormal cause or causes. Many short children are growing normally, and this is not referred to as a growth failure. Growth failure is a term used to describe failure to grow in length, Growth is a dynamic process that starts before a child is born and continues the bones it continues through puberty as the bones fuse together after puberty. After puberty, bones continue to mature to achieve prime bone density. Growth in length per year is age dependent and may be affected by Many different factors, including, but not limited to, hormonal abnormalities, chronic illnesses, genetic abnormalities, and so on. Failure to grow should be taken seriously, as it may indicate a hidden illness. Now, there's even a connection with adults. In adults, I'm still giving you stuff here from the encyclopedia, 
In adults, growth hormone contributes to maintenance of muscle and bone mass and strength as well as quality and productivity in life. Reported effects of severe growth hormone deficiency in adults have included reduced muscle mass and strength, reduced bone mass and strength, reduced physical, mental, and social energy and resilience, impaired concentration and loss of memory. All of us experience that as we get older. Maybe mild depression, increased body fat, particularly around the waistline, Uh, increased cholesterol, Mm -mm. increased mortality due to cardiovascular disease. Wow, that's a list of eight things there. Wow. Who would have thought that growth from infancy through adulthood was so important? Much of the aging process has to do with the body shutting down and being unable to grow any further. Carry now the analogy over to the spiritual realm. What happens if we fail to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord? Stunted growth. Stunted growth will show forth fear, lack of peace, insecurity as to one's spiritual state, inability to teach others, whom you love, the gospel, which is vital to their salvation, inability to progress beyond infancy in one's understanding of Christ and his grace. Stunted growth. Or, secondly, what about atrophy? Not only not developing in the things of God as you should, but losing what you did know and what kept your faith strong Thus, ignorance of God and the outworking of his salvation setting in. Depression, despair, loss of hope, inability to respond with joy to the things of God, little or no thanksgiving or appreciation for God and his glory, maybe indifference, maybe carelessness in spiritual matters, developing a who cares or what's the use attitude towards God, the church, fellow believers, atrophy. That is slipping back from where you once were. Any of this ring true with some of you? What's the problem? You've stopped growing in Christ. The humdrum of daily living, the worries and cares of family life have inundated you. You spend more time on secular pursuits than on the spiritual pursuits. God is distant. The world is near. Your priorities are messed up. Lesser things demand attention than the primary things of knowing God and growing in his grace. How do we change? Do you want to change? Where are you when the church gathers for prayer on Wednesday night? And worship on Sunday morning. You're going to be here tonight for music. And I say, I don't like music. I can't sing. Can you rejoice in the singing of others? We have one person in the church. I won't embarrass her. But she usually brings a, a reading to us. On some of the great hymns. 
how they came to be. We have testimonies that are given. It's a great time. And you get to see that your life is no, not any different than anybody else's life as a Christian and how they're struggling. You say, well, is that you saying misery loves company? Sometimes. <laughs> the misery helps us to see we're not alone. You know? That we're part of the body of Christ. All right, what's the remedy for growth? It's in our text. Fix your eyes on Christ and stay focused. Look at verse 2, the latter part. We know that when, we, when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. At first glance, this statement by John sounds futuristic. When Christ comes, we'll be like him. That certainly is a future reference. But notice the next phrase. We shall see him as he is. This speaks of a seeing which has finally reached full maturity, but it also implies at least that maturity and growth in the things of God is connected with keeping one's eyes upon Christ. In the adult class this morning, we started a little, we're still in the series on revival, but we're starting to talk about Christ as the owner of the church. You've got to keep your eyes on that. We often use the word see in the sense of knowledge, don't we? We're talking to a friend on how to go about marketing his new invention. He's into inventing. You're not into inventing, but you're into marketing. So you explain that new products need exposure. They need advertising. You tell them that millions of people shop for items on the Internet, that they use search engines to find what they want, you go through this lengthy explanation and then you turn to your friend and you ask, do you see what I'm saying? Do you see what I'm saying? It's the equivalent of asking, do you understand the marketing approach? Do you know what I'm advocating for your new invention? So to see Christ is the gaze which produces spiritual growth. There is no other look or contemplation that so helps us to grow spiritually. Theology books are helpful, that's true. Listening to biblical sermons, that's important. Prayer is essential. But all of these spiritual exercises must have Christ as the person you are studying or you will not, you cannot grow in the knowledge of God and in His grace. Now this is true for two reasons. Here they are. Number one. To see Christ is to see God. That's the first reason. This is amply illustrated in Jesus' conversation with Philip, who said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father. That'll be enough for us. It's like he's saying, you know, we haven't quite, we haven't gotten all, the, all that you can tell us, Lord. But if you'll do this for us, We'll be filled up. We'll be sufficient. To which Jesus replied, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say? Show us the Father. Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, 
are not just my own. Rather, it's the Father living in me who is doing his work. John 14, verse 8 and following. We note here that Jesus is a bit surprised. Philip, how can you you say, show us the Father? You cannot believe that Philip, a disciple who has been with him from the beginning, could not see that Jesus was God's Son and as such possessed the same nature, the same deity as his heavenly Father. And in context, Jesus referenced his many miracles as proof to Philip that God had been among the disciples doing his work. And what makes this a little strange for us to grasp is the analogy that we make to our own children. I can say, Jared is my son. But in saying that, I do not mean that he is me. He is his own man. That's the way we think. But consider that Jared also received his nature from me. I passed on my sinful nature to him, a character that can do no less than sin because I am a sinner. Jesus has the sinless nature of his father. He has the divine nature with all of its attributes and abilities, all-powerful, all-knowing, perfect in holiness, perfect in righteousness, in all of the judgments that he makes, and so on and so on. And it is this sense that Jesus can say that he and the father are one. They each have a specific emphasis and work, yeah, but they're identical in nature. Oh, and one other distinction, which does not apply to human fathers and sons. Jesus did not proceed from the Father. He was not reproduced by the Father, but was eternally the Son alongside of the Father from the beginning of creation. Same with the Holy Spirit. You want proof on that? Look at John 1, verse 1, following. Now the second focusing on Christ is seeing that causes us to grow spiritually is that Jesus is the epitome of the knowledge of God. And by the way, God wants it that way. He wants people to concentrate on Jesus, his son. The Trinity is set up that way. Paul, exhorting the church at Colossae, writes, So then, just as you receive Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and every authority. Colossians 2, 6 through 10. What a wonderful text. Again, the writer of Hebrews compares Jesus and what you can learn of God through him with the prophets of old and what they taught of God. Here's what he says. 
In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the universe. The son is the exact radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purification for sins, he, the son, sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. Or Paul to the Colossians, it is because of him, God, that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. In the Colossians 2 text that we noted earlier, Paul tells why it is he labors so hard with the churches by giving them the gospel. He says, My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart, united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. The mystery of God, namely Christ. Wow. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2, verse 2 and 3. He's saying, in case you missed it, he is saying that Jesus is the treasure trove of God's wisdom. You learn of him and you will know the wisdom of God. Fix your eyes on Christ and stay focused there. The second means of growth is keep yourself pure. Look at verse 3. Everyone who has this hope in him, that is, because they've seen Christ in his fullness, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. Think about this. Christ, the wisdom of God in a dirty mind. Does that compute? It isn't going to happen. The holy Jesus in a sinful body? Not likely. Paul told the Corinthian believers, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I take the members of Christ's body and unite them with a prostitute? Never! Flee from sexual immorality. Do you not know that your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. 1 Corinthians 6, 15 and following. Paul to Timothy, If anyone teaches false doctrines, and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching. He is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicion, constant friction between men of corrupt minds who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means of financial gain. 1 Timothy 6. 3 through 5. 
Sanctification is a cooperative effort between us as believers and the Spirit of God. Thus John says, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself. You have a part in this. I have a part in this. We all do. The world encroaches. The devil tempts. Solicitations to evil thinking are everywhere, and they gain footing. To know Christ fully, we must keep ourselves pure, vessels vessels fit for the master's use. Do you want to know the wisdom of the ages? To be able to tap into the very wisdom of God? Then come to Christ, who is the embodiment of all that God is. Find Christ, you find God. Learn of Jesus, and you've studied God. God will send his Holy Spirit to your aid, for it is God's desire that people should seek him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. In coming, you must repent of your sin. Jesus forgives and cleanses of sin, but he does not approve or whitewash sin. It has to go. You must renounce it. Sin is what necessitates his cruel death on the cross. God cannot look favorably upon sin, and that means in your life as well. And believers here this morning, are you growing in your faith? i got to ask that question. If not, why not? What has stunted your progress? Have you taken your eyes off Jesus? Have you been sidetracked into lesser pursuits? Has family or work or the pleasures of sin captured you and held you hostage? You need to repent and come back to your first love. That's the only way you're going to grow. You say, well, I know you, Pastor, I'm just having a rough time now. Yeah. I can tell you for a little church, we have a lot of people having a rough time. But that's not a time to give up your faith. That's a time to strengthen your faith. It's not a time to abandon Christ. It's a time to draw close to Christ. And when you do that, it's his grace that will be infused into your life. Our Father, we thank you for your word. It keeps us on track. I know sometimes each of us think that uh, the things we are going through are unique. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen, says the old spiritual. Nobody knows but Jesus. However, it is great truth that he does know. And we could go on to say that he does not abandon us. Another hymn says, In the hour of trial, Jesus plead for me, lest by faith denial I retreat from thee. Yes, we need God's grace to stay faithful. But wonder of wonders, God wants us to be faithful and he will empower us. Help us to see that. Help us not to pull away from Christ, but in fact to pull close to Christ. Help us to see Jesus 
not a man-made Jesus, not the Jesus of our despair, not the Jesus of our imagination, not the Jesus whom we might be a bit upset with because we didn't get all our prayer requests answered the way we wanted, but the Jesus that's the glory of God the Father and the Savior of sinners. Bless us and bring us to close dealings with you. Bless our day today. Bring us out tonight to sing praises to you. In Christ's name, amen.